Artistic Whispers Productions presents Let us make man in our own image, said God. We create God. We create God. We create God. Man, being a gentleman, return the favor. You're listening to Sculpting God, a podcast anthology written and read by J. Daniel Sawyer. These stories contain enough terror, sex, violence, and wonder to keep you awake all night. Sculpting God. We've all seen him. The man sitting at the airport of the train station, or leaning against a pole, waiting for someone who will come. Sometime. And you wondered who he was waiting for. Have you ever met someone who took your breath away only to realize it was because you breathed the same air? Maybe that's who he was waiting for. Spending his days and nights in the station waiting and waiting for train time. foot tapped measuredly on the plank, hammering out the steady tick-tock rhythm. It was not a rubber foot such had been common on cane feet for over a century now, but a proper pinned steel cane foot, suitable for a weapon or a prop to lean on or a scepter with which to gesticulate. It kept its clock-like rhythm even as the steam engine pulled out of the station a few feet from the bench where its owner sat in his frock coat and top hat, measuring the minutes in percussive time. The late afternoon summer was dry and hot, save for the oppressive blasts of humidity that coated the ticket window with a fog for a few brief moments when a locomotive deigned to grace the lonely platform with its presence. The endless, in-between times stretched on like the deep split grain of the wooden planks that seemed to continue uninterrupted from one floorboard to the next. Across the double tracks, past the far platform, flies and weevils swarmed above the autumn grain, taking from it what pickings they could before the harvest. It was the last day of summer. Soon the dust would rise from the fields and the northern world would hunker down for a winter that was comfortable and warm, circumscribed by brick and fiberglass, hearths long since replaced by electric heaters. The days when people froze to death for want of wood or heating oil or gas were well gone, but the anachronistic frock coat and cane went seemingly unnoticed on the forgotten railway line, where steam power serviced the nostalgic, aging population whose automated homes drew power from the nuclear worldwide grid. The coming months would be a time of hibernation for Europe, but neither the cold, slow, yearly death the old world had endured, nor the slowed-down, fallow time of the new world, were in the future of this man from out the storybooks of Conan Doyle or the misty streets of Whitechapel. And yet, for all his out-of-place formality, the bench he sat on was wrought iron, and the foot of his cane kept perfect time. He seemed a fixture in the weather-beaten station. 
The steel band left small indentations in the old gray oak, and the cane's wielder was beginning to regret his promise to await the train from Bern. It had seemed like a good idea at the time. It had seemed the most natural thing in the world. Leaving Gibraltar, they each had business to attend to, loose ends of past lives to tie up before they embarked together for the new frontier. She could have flown in, of course. The airport was near enough from their ship's moorings. Or she could have driven, but somehow... Even back in Morocco, the steam train had seemed best. It had seemed fitting that they leave their old world behind in proper style, and the Orient Express and a few of the other remaining locomotives on the planet ran right past their destination. So it had been settled. They'd kissed goodbye and promised to meet in two months. There had been chats and vid calls and letters and every other sort of communication that was available to them, And when they got so busy they went without each other for a few days or a week, their reconnection was that much sweeter for the absence. She was a hunger for him, as real as his need for meat, and far more dearly sought, while he was to her like water. Or that's what she had said, over and over again. Tap, tap, tap. That was what she had said, and he'd believed her. But he'd been here, waiting on the Orient Express, its last run of the summer, for two days. It had been delayed. There'd been no word. Perhaps a mechanical breakdown had stranded it in a high pass, Ah, but he discarded that notion as soon as it occurred to him. This wasn't the 19th century. There were sat phones and radios, and if nothing else, the ticket agent should know something. But if he knew anything, he wasn't telling. She was a practical woman, not one to wait around for repairs. If the train were stranded, she'd probably found a flat to let while she waited, even though the train had comfortable accommodations. She'd want to take advantage of a last chance to explore an alpine village. She'd dig in and sample the culture, find a club with a good local band, and drink microbrews. She'd tour the local historical monuments and maybe have a long conversation over chess in whatever language was spoken in that remote corner of the world. She spoke all the languages. She'd have no trouble blending in. But when her train departed, she'd be on her way to him again, forsaking whatever brief affair she found to occupy her time to be her last hurrah. Assuming she'd gotten on the train at all. Assuming she would tear herself away from her new life by the stranded train. Tap, tap, tap. That was, of course, assuming that she was even able to board or reboard. Even in today's relatively safe world, she may have met with intrigue or accident. She could have been abducted and ferried off to one of the remote corners of the world where they trafficked in women like her. But no. Of course she would come. It wasn't her fault that the train had been inexplicably delayed. Was it possible that it had simply vanished? Certainly there had been two other coaches through from Berlin... How else could they have gotten through if the old master of the European railway had fallen on hard times and was blocking the track? Could it have slipped through some tear in the fabric of the universe, vanishing in the mountains like an ancient Roman legion? As ridiculous as it sounded, it seemed the only thing to fit the facts. He took out an antique gold watch and popped the cover enjoying the ritual quality it added to checking the time and the sensuality of the softly pulsing clockwork. Their time was slipping away. Tomorrow the last ship would be leaving, 
the last that they would be allowed to board, the last that could be caught. If they missed it, there would be little left to do. The new life they planned together would be frustrated. They had both, with great care, disposed of everything they would not need on their voyage. Jobs had been quit, possessions that were not too dear to part with were given away to family, to friends, to old lovers, and to charities. Loved ones had been bid farewell. There was little now left to do but wait, and hope that she arrived in time. Each day as the hours rolled away around the clock face, he would take his lunch at a bistro on the main street and sit by the window where he could watch the train tracks wending their way down the mountains from the pass into the vale. As his teeth cut through the bread and meat, he would contemplate the voyage that lay before them, and as he sipped his wine, he would roll it around on his tongue, remembering the taste of her sweat in the North African heat. He closed his eyes and remembered photographing her on the first day they'd met. She had lain naked atop a crumbling arch in the ruins of Carthage, painted orange and rose pink by the retreating sun, making a cruel mockery of the exquisite idols strewn over the city long since wasted. They had lasted longer than she would, and yet she burned brighter, the platonic ideal that the ancient sculptors had only aspired to. He had left her there among the ruins, dancing to music only she could hear. Had he not known better, he might have thought her mad, but somehow he understood her madness. He had read the secret in her eyes and her words, and he knew that she understood what he was about, and he understood her too. Too well too soon, and perhaps too much, but the age of the place seemed to reach up from the salted earth like a specter to haunt their time together, and fostered the understanding. After they met again the following day in Casablanca, they did not part again until their ways diverged into Gibraltar. From there, she'd gone home to London, and he to his home in Florence. The sun was getting on now, and the cane tapped measuredly against the aging varnish on the oak. He knew underneath his justifications that she might not be on the train when it finally came in. It might not even have been wise to part as they had. The tying up of loose ends always seemed to spawn new threads in the tapestry after all. What was it that someone had once said? Let the dead bury their own dead. Tap. Cain came to a rest, as if it had, of its own accord, measured out the final seconds that it was allotted. The man in the frock coat knew that his time for waiting had not yet expired, that there was yet another day he could wait here, alone, at his post. He had taken the post of his own accord, a promise freely given. And yet the cane would not move. And still the train would not come. As the shadows lengthened, he heard the music of a lone guitarist from somewhere beyond the wheat field. A softly lilting tenor voice sang a plaintive lament that mirrored the man's own angst. Sounds of beauty and longing. Words of delight turning too soon to nostalgia as if the maple leaves were falling in June instead of October. It wasn't her fault, he reminded himself, that the entire train seemed to have disappeared from the face of the earth, nor that the underpaid railway staff seemed remarkably unconcerned. That alone told him that sooner or later it would arrive. He steeled himself to wait just a little bit longer. His cane's foot began to move again, no longer marking time, but meter. 
It gave him 4-4 time, and he hummed a song that he danced to with her so often in Casablanca. And as time went by, he let the music grow in him until he floated in a dream, the music accompanied first by strings, then by brass. He repeated the lyrics like a mantra, as if he could summon the express back from its mythic past and mysterious present and onto the platform where it belonged. Had he been standing rather than sitting on the bench, he was sure he'd have been dancing much like she'd danced in the sunset at Carthage. The music built in his mind, built until it seemed to ring with a single, sustained note from a steam whistle echoing off the mountains and rolling across the now-dark plains to his ears. He opened his eyes and with a start looked up into the notch between the high peaks where he saw snaking along a dark path a small glowing millipede under a full head of steam. Van Gogh himself could not have painted a more perfect picture under the stars and his heartbeat mounted upon itself like the coal in the steam engine's furnace, and he began to hear the rapid, rhythmic chugging, and his eyes flitted away from the locomotive and up to the towering granite peaks beyond the infinite expanse retreating forever above them, and he was suddenly seized with an overwhelming regret. After tonight, there would be no more chance encounters with ruined cities, no more love-making in the grass, no more sunsets, no sound of the lark and the nightingale, just the artifice of radiation shielding and oxygen scrubbers. When her train finally arrived, they would both be embarking to a realm where they knew nothing, and no language would serve them, a place where they would be equally aliens. It was the future, the chance to build a new world whose soils had not yet been fertilized with the blood of feuding brothers, but the grand destiny and the import of the task didn't soften the late-coming realization that tomorrow he would be leaving mankind's cradle for the last time. This, too, he had freely promised. And yet, with all the aching beauty he would be leaving behind, he would be taking with him the paragon that Earth had produced, and there would be new generations to carry her beauty forward to the new world, not yet familiar with the grace and barbarity that humanity would bring. She would be with him, and that thought tempered his grief. The train was close now, less than a kilometer away, and he waited near the edge of the platform like a child trying to make the distance between himself and a long-expected guest as small as possible. As he watched it barreling towards him, he made out the words, Orient Express, emblazoned under its smokestack. And he breathed a sigh of relief at last. It had arrived. His time of waiting was over. All that remained to be seen was whether she was actually on board, whether she had come at all. The living, after all, had to get on with the job of living, while the dead buried their own. As the enormous coal-fired dragon lumbered to a halt with its doors open, the man wrapped his cloak around his body and closed his eyes, afraid to find that his thread and hers were no longer entangled on fate's skein. If he concentrated, he could almost see the tapestry. He could nearly pick out his thread and hers. With his cane tapping again upon the rough oak, marking the seconds as the train emptied, the new story began with a tap, tap, tap.
Train Time was written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer. It was recorded and mixed at Artistic Whispers Production Studios in Castro Valley, California. Music provided by Podsafe Music Network affiliated musicians Jordan Daniel Wood, Ash Vergie, and Alan Perry. Sound effects furnished by the Freesound Project at freesound.iua.ufp.edu. This recording is licensed under a Creative Commons non-commercial attribution no derivatives license. This story is copyright 2006 J. Daniel Sawyer, and the recording based on it is copyright 2007 Artistic Whispers Productions. All rights reserved to the author. North Africa, Mesopotamia, Italy. The places where humans came from the corners of the world and joined together to build the ancient world's great civilizations. Walking through their ruins now, you can get a glimpse of the majesty and wonder that was once there. Shelley and Ozymandias meditated on the dust that overtook Egypt and the futility of mankind. But the fact remains that men with hand tools built the pyramids and the Pantheon of Rome and the great temples of India and Cambodia and Europe. Train Time is a love story, but not just in the normal sense. It's a love letter to the things that are best in humanity. The story of the steam engine and the change it wrought upon the world is one of my favorites. That single invention was the fulcrum that lifted humanity from the horse and buggy to walking on the moon. But despite long protestations to the contrary, it didn't take away what makes us human. Our nature, as bloody as it is exalted, will follow us out into the stars. And the risks we make to connect with one another and to pioneer our own paths may ultimately be our salvation. In the lifetime of many of you listening, people will be living on the moon. And when we've mastered that, generations from now, the star is our destination. Our ability to form communities, to bond deeply and love well, our will to expand and survive gives us an even chance of outlasting even the sun. J.C. Hutchins, author of the Seventh Sun novels, has been kind enough to run a promo for this program on his podcast. All of you joining me for the first time coming from there, welcome. Pull up a chair, have a drink. I'm glad to have you here and hope you enjoy the stories coming up. Everyone else... Check out the Seventh Sun podcast at www.jchutchins.net and check out the Seventh Sun promo on the feed here. If you like good suspense novels, this guy's your man. Also, I'm going to be going to a more regular release schedule. Starting December 15th, I'll be posting a new episode on the 1st and the 15th of every month. Pretty easy to remember, paycheck day. Set your calendars and watch your feed. You'll be hearing a lot more from me soon. And thank you, everybody, for your kind comments on the blog. Um... No significant criticism, just a few attaboys here and there. But uh, if you want to call into the comment line at 206-376-1925, I'll be happy to play it on the show and respond. Also, if you have a podcast you want to promote, drop me a line at feedback at jdsawyer.net and we'll trade promos. Join me next time on Sculpting God when we'll meet a creature who lives in a single room and is called only Control. In, appropriately enough, a story called control room until next time 
Sculpting God is written and directed by J. Daniel Sawyer. Web design, production, and post-production services provided by Artistic Whispers Productions, www.artisticwhispers.com. Theme music for this podcast provided by Podsafe Music Network artists 100 Year Picnic and 2012. One, two, one, two, three. Hi, I'm a Murr. And I'm a JC. What you doing there, JC? Oh, just putting together the next episode of Seven Sun Book Three Destruction. It's gonna be good. Oh, cool. I'm looking forward to hearing it. You and 34,999 other people, baby. It's an excellent trilogy. You should be proud. <laughs> I am. Trust me, I am. You should see me. Buffing my uh, fingernails on my coat here. Hey, speaking of which, didn't we launch fiction podcasts at the same time in June? Yeah, I launched uh, Heaven Season 3, Earth, last June. Yeah, well, you should really turn your eye to podcasting something that's got a little more legs, Murr. Seventh Son is still going strong and looks like heaven shut down. You shouldn't end your trilogy in just a handful of weeks. But it's not a trilogy. Uh, it's not? No, I have seasons four and five mapped out, and in between I'll be podcasting my novel, Playing for Keeps. So I'll be podcasting fiction well into 2008. Hey, what do you have on deck after Seven Sun Ends? Uh, uh, I gotta go. Download the Seven Sun Trilogy and the Heaven series, and look for Playing for Keeps there in November at patiobooks.com. Mm-hmm.